0: Good morning, everybody. Good to be with you. Looking forward to jumping back into the book of Proverbs together today as we try to gain some more wisdom for life. And we gain that by going to the one who is the source of wisdom. God, who is the creator and sovereign king, who knows what's best in all areas of life, which is why this summer we've been looking at a bunch of different topics. Because God's wisdom applies to all of life. We have much to learn from him. And it begins with the fear of the Lord, which is a posture of honoring and obeying God that is rooted in and motivated by love. And today, the topic we're going to talk about is family. And if I can even just take a quick second and give you an update on my family, uh, as many of you all have been faithfully praying for us uh, for a a long time now, knowing that we're in the process of adopting two little ones. Uh, This past Wednesday, we had our final court hearing. Uh, and it's official. We're now a family of six. Um, <laughs> Leo and Rosalind, who are, Leo is five, and Roslyn, who we call Rosie, is three. They are officially shepherds forever and ever and ever, which is very excited. So thank you for walking with us, praying uh, for us and with us in that. And we're excited to welcome them not only into our family, but into the larger Chelton family. So thanks for caring for us. Uh, Very fittingly, uh, today's topic is family. I promise you, this schedule was set uh, months ago, so maybe a little bit of the Lord's providence there. But we're going to talk, as we think about family, Proverbs has a lot to say about all the different dynamics and all the different relationships within the family, but today we're specifically going to focus in on parenting. Parenting is a sensitive subject. We all come from a family. Whether you are a parent right now, you know something, you have some sort of experience with parenting because you were raised, you were shaped by your upbringing of your parents. Even if you have experienced the pain of abandonment or death of a parent at a young age, you are still shaped by even the lack of that interaction. You can't help it. This is how God has designed it, that we would be brought into the world and grow in the world through the family unit. We're all shaped by that. For good, some of us desperately want to please our parents. We have really positive memories and experiences. And so we look back, and and we want to be like them. We want to please them. In fact, maybe you even feel like you're living a little bit in their shadow. And for others of us, those memories are actually really uh, traumatic. Because you want to be anything but like your parents. You're working incredibly hard to do things almost opposite. Maybe you're actually wrestling with resentment and bitterness or anger or hatred toward them because of all the experiences you had. And the reality is is most of us are probably somewhere in between there the mix of those. Parenting is a beautiful and exciting task, and it's absolutely terrifying and humbling at the same time. You're responsible for the shaping and formation of another human who will then shape and form other humans. And by the time you realize whether you've done something well or not, or you realize how you should have done it, you're done. I heard somebody say once that you can't even evaluate your own parenting based on your kids, but you actually evaluate it on their kids. Did you raise your kids to raise their kids to follow the Lord? But by the time that moment comes, you're done. It's a huge job. It's daunting. And on top of that, we, tend, we have a tendency to view parenting in some really unhelpful ways. It can become a source, of fuel for self-righteous heart, where you feel arrogant because you feel like you've got all the right answers, you're making all the right decisions, and you can look down in judgmental condemnation on those who make choices that are different than yours. It can feel like a competition at times. Or it highlights your insecurity because you're afraid that someone else is constantly judging your parental decisions. Or maybe you feel a little bit in despair this moment when this topic came up because you feel like you have failed. And you feel like all you feel is regret when you look back. And still for others, this conversation is deeply personal and hurtful because for years of trying... They've found that they're unable to have children, or through being single, not able to have a child. We come from so many different places in this conversation, and yet I want us to see today that the book of Proverbs, as it speaks on the topic of parenting, has actually a great deal for all of us, regardless of what situation and stage in life you're in. For some of us, this is where we live 24-7. You feel like you can't get a break from it, even if you wanted to. Maybe you've got little ones, toddlers, really little ones. You're still changing diapers. Maybe you're in the terrible twos. We find that it's the terrible threes, personally, and the fours, and sometimes fives and sixes and sevens. um, But in this stage, you say some of the weirdest things, and some of my favorite things that I've said are, um, stop licking your brother's face. Please stop licking the wall of the play place at Chick-fil-A. That was just a couple weeks ago, actually. And my favorite was two months ago, please don't poke the dog in the butthole. That was an actual sentence that came out of my mouth. I'm sorry if that was crude there. I just, literally what I said. You say things you never thought you'd have to say. But for some of you, those conversations have taken a, sh- a shift and they've changed because now you're into preteens and adolescents and teenage years. And those conversations are very different. Sometimes you even struggle to have a conversation. Puberty changes everything all over again, and still many of you are actually, would even take those days because empty nesting is really hard for you. You've got kids, you're, you're now trying to figure out, how do I parent this adult who isn't really able to handle all these decisions, but is an adult, or they're in college, or they're young adults, and they're raising kids, and you're a grandparent, and you're just, everything changes. Even if you're not a parent today, what we're going to talk about is important because you may one day be a parent, or you may be an aunt and uncle, or you may be an aunt or uncle. My kids have a lot of aunts and uncles in this room. People who are invested in the lives of your family, friends, your kids, or at the very least, you're involved in this church, and every time we have a parent-child dedication, we as a church make a commitment to being a part of joining that family to help parent and raise each other's kids. It's part of what it means to be the family of God. And parenting is such a loaded topic that we couldn't even come close to picking one specific issue and running it all the way through in 30 minutes. We just don't have the ability to do that. So we're going to try and step back and see some of the foundational truths that Proverbs has for us. And if you want, there are so many excellent resources out there. Be happy to talk with you about them if there are specific issues that you are questioning. I know Mary Davis, the other pastors, the staff here, the elders, we'd be happy to just dialogue with that. In the digital bulletin, there are a few of my personal favorite resources that just will take them or leave them. But this morning, we want to see from Proverbs three things for us. We want to see the goal of parenting, the problem of parenting, and the hope of parenting. The goal, the problem, and the hope is what you're going to see in Proverbs, okay? But to start off as we think about the goal of parenting just a quick question how, how many of the proverbs how much of proverbs is about parenting I think depending on how you approach proverbs all of them all of them are about parenting all of them in some level talk about the formation that primarily aimed as we read it as readers, but also as parents. You're not now just responsible for growing in wisdom personally, but you're responsible for training up in wisdom as well, as we're going to see. Proverbs itself is parenting. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, after a seven-verse kind of introduction, Proverbs 1, verse 8, the very first verse, says, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. And what follows is a lengthy instruction and teaching. And what you see then from Proverbs throughout some different verses, and just the whole of it, is that the very goal of parenting is this. The formation of wise, godly character in the lives of children, which leads to life and flourishing. Our goal of parenting is the formation of wise, godly character in the lives of children, which leads to life and flourishing. If that's the goal of parenting, my question is, is that what you would have answered? And I don't mean would you have answered that way with your your mouth. I mean, would your life reflect that that's the goal of parenting? Or would your practical goal of parenting, by how your kids experience your parenting... Be something like peace and quiet. Like getting them to just behave. Controlling their behavior. Controlling, living vicariously through your children. What would your kids actually experience from you? Do you see every moment, are you actively looking for opportunities to disciple, to cultivate wise character in your children? And perhaps the most well-known proverb on parenting is found in Proverbs 22.6. Many of you probably know it. It's listed on the sheet that you hopefully grabbed on the way in. Proverbs 22.6 says, Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. It's a well-known proverb. Many of you have probably heard that before. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably heard it. It's a loaded proverb, and unfortunately it's often used very unhelpfully, incorrectly. So before we think about kind of the unhelpful ways that that has been used and we've experienced that, that and the emotions that that proverb can bring, let's first talk about what it's actually saying here. Most translations take this proverb and translate it from Hebrew into a very positive, instructive thing for parents. Train them up in the way they should go. It presents a positive picture of what you're to do. And that's good and right, and we'll talk about that positive way in a second. But if you translate it absolutely literally, very woodenly, it'll fit more like the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, which is another great translation. Here's how it reads. Start a youth out on his way. Even when he grows, he will not depart from it. Translated very directly and literally, it's a neutral verse. It just states the importance of the younger years of formation of however you start a child off, they will tend to carry on in that same trajectory. If you read this very neutral, if you take this neutral verse and read it almost sarcastically, it could be read this way Let a child have his way when he's young. Let her think she's the center of the universe. Let him think the world revolves around him, and when he is old, he will continue to insist on his way. Give a child their own way, and they will continue to believe that they are the center of the universe. Think Veruca Salt from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I want it now. Right? If you know that movie or that story, just bratty, demanding, center of the universe attitude. Or, as many translations take it, they present it, if that's true, If the way that a child is raised from very young sets them on a trajectory for their life, well then naturally the wise move is as parents to set them intentionally, to lead them, instruct them, guide them on a path towards wisdom. It's not simply managing behavior. These these words that were used here to start them off is to train, to dedicate. It's the same phrase that's used to describe what Solomon does to the temple, to dedicate it towards a purpose. And in this case, we're told to train them up in the way. What is the way? Well, Proverbs is always presented two ways. There's the way of the wise and the way of the fool. And I don't think it takes much to see that Proverbs is calling us to dedicate our children, commit our children to raising them and heading them in the trajectory, in the direction of the way of wisdom. It's talking about a parent's commitment to the spiritual and godly formation of a child from a young age, to the formation of their character, not simply managing behavior. This phrase that comes out of Hebrew is is actually really an interesting phrase. It it gives you a picture. If we spoke Hebrew and we read it that way, you you would get this picture of taking a piece of sweet fruit, mashing it up and sticking it on the palate of an infant's mouth so that when they taste the sweetness, they instantly begin to nurse and suck because they taste the sweetness. What a beautiful picture, isn't it? Parents, this is our privilege to present to our kids such an appealing, such a tasty way of living in wisdom, in obedience and surrender to God, that they want to pursue it themselves. Parents, you are by far the primary faith influencers in the lives of your children. I strongly believe that the church is an important role in that, and we'll talk about that a little later. Youth ministry, super important. Children's ministry, Sunday school teachers, such important roles. However, parents, you are the primary influencers. Just even by a show of hands, how many of you here would say that you came to know and love and follow Jesus primarily as a direct result of your parents' ordinary faithful instruction? How many of you would say that's your story? How many of you, though, would say that even if that wasn't your story, that's your prayer for your children? Everybody. That's what we're talking about here. Parents, please do not outsource your God-given responsibility, but lean into it. How? How do we dedicate them? How do we train them in this way of wisdom? Well, it must be both taught and caught. Taught. Let's talk about taught first, teaching. It's always been the call of God on his people to train up children intentionally. All the way back in Deuteronomy, after you hear the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The most important command, Jesus even says. And what follows that is this. These commandments I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Put them all over the place. Talk about it all the time, intentionally instructing. So that means that for us, in addition to instructing your kids on how to clean their rooms, and how to cook dinner, and how to manage finances, and and play sports, and do algebra, and teaching them just common sense, like not to lick the walls at Chick-fil-A. As you're teaching all of these things, the question for you is how are you intentionally instructing your children in the ways of the Lord? What does it look like for you to intentionally instruct them? Do you pray together? Do you read and talk about Scripture together? Do you discuss spiritual things? Is it clear to your kids that God matters beyond Sunday morning to you? For us, this mostly often happens at dinnertime and at bedtime. Two naturally built-in rhythms for our family, in addition to us looking for as often as we can. How do we see these moments as opportunities to instruct we value dinner table almost above nearly anything else as a chance just to catch up and be together. And as best we can, I can tell you it's been really rough the last couple of months to do this, but as best we can, we try to read something together. We try to read Scripture together as a family at dinner time. It looks very different. With kids at three, five, seven, and nine, we don't jump right into the book Leviticus. We try to set them up so they can understand we're sitting in narratives, and sometimes we're using, we're using uh, books and resources like the Jesus Storybook Bible, the Rhyme Bible, all these things. We're trying to find ways. Sometimes it's just a simple question to a little three-year-old. Who loves you more than anyone else in this world? And she knows the answer is God. Very simple instruction, age-appropriate. But is that intentional? Are you building in things through songs, through stories, through prayer, through service together? How is, what is the story? What are the rhythms of your family? And how are they following this instruction? How are we using them to train up our children in the way of wisdom? You have, ready for a really kind of depressing thing? You have 6,570 days with your children from birth to 18. That's 936 Saturdays. How will you use them? How will you use them? However, what you're teaching cannot just be taught, because what you're living will definitely be caught. You see, growing up, I would hear my dad talk about the importance of reading Scripture. But that didn't impact me nearly to the degree that it did of coming down the stairs pretty much every morning and seeing him in his seat reading his Bible. Did he do it every day? No. In fact, he'll listen to this later and he'll tell me, John, I was so sporadic at best. I'll be honest, there were times I'd come down the stairs and I'd see his eyes closed and just assume he was praying. He might not have been praying. He might have been asleep. But I can tell you that that formed me and that shaped me to see that as a priority. I saw him model faithful, selfless service to my mom for years through she, as she walked through extremely challenging physical circumstances. I saw my mom model for me a raw and honest relationship with God that clung to his promises through ups and downs. My parents modeled for me the importance of spiritual things by how they spoke to one another and to us, by how they lived, the importance of hospitality and caring for others, The supreme worth of seeing the gospel go to the ends of the earth. All of that was caught far more than it was taught because your kids are watching. So the question again is if your kids looked, as your kids look at your life, what are they catching? What would they see based on your interactions as being the most important thing in your mind? Grades in school? Success on the sports field or court is the most important thing, maybe not in your words, but in your life, succeeding at the American dream, having an influential job, being powerful, having a lot of stuff. Your kids are catching you, and you can tell them one thing all you want, but they can smell a fake. They're really good at it. How are your values reflected in your schedule and your finances and your conversations? Proverbs chapter 20, verse 7, which I neglected to put on the sheet, unfortunately, says this It says that the righteous lead blameless lives, and blessed are their children after them. Which means that ultimately the best gift that you can give your children has nothing to do with them, but has everything to do with you and the Lord. As you pursue the Lord, as you walk in the fear of the Lord, that reverential honoring obedience to Him because you love Him, as you follow Him, you're giving the kids the best gift you could ever give them. must be caught and taught. Now this proverb, start a child off in the way they should go, and even when they're old will not turn from it. For many people, this passage becomes a source of shame because it's used as if it was intended to be a blanket promise. That if you could just manipulate your child's life and, and make them go to church enough times and do all the right things and read your Bible enough to them, and then you can guarantee that they will love Jesus one day. The problem is your children are not made on the assembly line in the factory of your home. They're not computers to have information downloaded to. They're chunks of, of clay that need to be formed and shaped. Parents, you are responsible for modeling and teaching your children, leading them in the way of wisdom, both with your words and by modeling it. But you are not responsible for their acceptance or rejection. That's a scary thing. Your children have the responsibility to respond to and not despise the instruction They're giving, which brings us now to the second point, which is there's a problem of parenting. And the problem is actually twofold. It's going to sound the same, but you'll see what I mean in a second, how it's actually two different things. The first problem is you're parenting fools. The second problem is you're parenting fools. Let me show you what I mean. Proverbs 22, 15, on your sheet there, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Kids, if you're sitting here today, students, youth, don't take this personally. This is not a jab. This is literally, I don't mean this as an insult to your children. I mean this as a biblical description in the way that we talked a couple of months ago, the way Pastor Jen unpacked, what is a fool? A fool is one who lacks wisdom, either because they're kind of a blank slate and just don't know, or because they're, at worst, living in complete rejection of it. But here's the deal. Your kids come into this world needing wisdom, kind of blank slate ish, but not blank slate. They're actually bent away from God. Your kids are not born as adorable as they are, as cute as they are, they're not born in neutral territory. They're born enemies of God, the Bible teaches us. God has given humanity over to our foolishness, Romans 1 says, that we have rejected the Creator and want the creation and we don't think we need Him. And God has given us over to our foolishness, and so that every generation, every child that's born into this world is not born neutral or on God's side. They are born enemies of God. They are born fools. Proverbs fifteen five says that as fools, they despise wisdom. A fool spurns parents' discipline, and whoever heeds correction shows prudence. Do your kids obey the very first time? Mine don't. I don't. Proverbs 1.7, fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 15.20, a foolish do- son despises his mother. Despises his mother means he acts like he don't need him. It takes like two years for a kid to go, no, I do it, right? They don't need mom and dad, but they don't seek truly. They don't live in reality. You don't teach children to be selfish. They don't even need it modeled for them. You ever see them take a toy out of their hand and smack their sibling? They don't. Hopefully, I don't catch that from mom and dad. I don't smack Jolie because I want the remote, right? It's like, but that, you don't teach kids that. They just can do it. Children don't naturally adhere to give a rip about or pursue the instruction of God. As fools, they don't seek it out. They don't live in reality. And we end up in some unhelpful places when we forget that they're fools because we expect them to get things right the first time. I told you once already. What's wrong with you? They're fools, mom and dad. They need it repeated. Or when we forget they're fools, we give them far too much responsibility far too early because, well, we want them to make decisions. They're fools. Don't expect a fool to make a wise decision. Yes, you do want to grow them into making decisions for themselves, but at the right pace in the right spot. When we, when we forget that we're parenting fools, we're surprised by the poor choices they make and we don't expect them to sin. And we get upset and we get overly upset at the mess that they make in their lives. One of the best pieces of parenting advice I think I've ever been given was by a former mentor of mine who looked at me and said, your kids are going to make a mess of their lives. Your hope is that you're close enough to help them pick it up. And as loving parents, we don't just give them over to their foolishness. We don't just leave them on their own. But in love, we discipline them. This is overwhelmingly the majority of the verses in Proverbs that are specifically about parenting have to do with discipline. We just saw it, Proverbs 22, 6. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. You see, actually, though, it's important to step back because the very first place we find the, the idea of parental discipline in the book of Proverbs is not about a father or a mother to a son or daughter, but it's about the Lord to his children. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says this, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord dis- disciplines those he loves as a father, the son that he delights in. As we start talking about the idea of disciplining children, that conversation must begin with an understanding of how God disciplines us as his children. That the idea of discipline and love are not polar opposites, mutually exclusive, but for God they are one and the same. Because he loves, he disciplines. As he disciplines, he loves. He disciplines in love, with the intention of love. And as we think about what it looks like to discipline our children, It must be a reflection of God. Biblical discipline is far more than just punishment for inappropriate behavior. But actually, if you step back and look at what discipline is throughout the entire Bible, it is both correction and instruction. It's both correcting foolish mistakes, helping them to learn from those mistakes, and instructing as a means of avoiding foolish mistakes. It's both proactive and reactive at the same time. It's always done in love. With the goal of restoring, the goal of growth, not the goal of getting the anger out of me. Discipline, godly discipline, is never your outlet for anger. It's never simply aimed at the actions, but it always involves a conversation that revolves around the heart. For many of us, that's so scary that our tendency is to just step back. Well, I don't want to mess anything up, so I'm just going to default to not discipline. Thanks for thinking that. Proverbs 13, 24 is going to teach us on that. Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. If your knee jerk is to back off and go, I don't want to mess this up, I don't want to overparent, so I'll tend towards under-parenting, I don't want to, I don't want to discipline at all, then just know that Proverbs says that's an act of hatred towards your children. To let a fool continue in their course of folly is hatred. Right in the heels of talking about love in discipline, Proverbs says that withholding it is not loving. But I know a number of you are, are sitting here going, whoa, 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 what is this rod thing we're talking about here? Described as the rod, the rod of discipline. You see it in a couple of verses on your passage. And as modern readers, we look at that and we can't help but think of some old fashioned child abuse. That's kind of where our mind goes of like, that's just child abuse. But again, if you step back and you look at the way that the, the word rod is used throughout the Bible, the Hebrew people had a little bit of a different understanding than maybe you might have created in your mind. You see, the rod can be used as an instrument of punishment, but it's not always. There are times where that is appropriate. You must discipline. You must correctively discipline your children. And the rod is also a tool used by a shepherd to guide and to lead his sheep. It's both instructive and a tool to guide, and it's a tool to correct. It's saying the same thing. The rod is a symbol of this need to discipline both correctively and instructively, proactively and reactively. See, in Psalm 23, the sheep are described as being guided by their shepherd into pastures that are green and beautiful, and also through really hard valleys of the shadow of death. But what's he say? Your rod and your staff are a comfort to me. They're not a fearful thing. No child enjoys discipline. However, as they grow in wisdom, they will learn to appreciate If your heart is to them, toward them, in instructing them, in loving them. In my many years of being a youth pastor, I had one young man say to me this. He said, every time my dad hits me when I've done something wrong, it doesn't change my heart. It only teaches me not to do those actions in front of him. This is why the New Testament comes and says fathers, parents, parents, do not embitter your children, do not exasperate your children. Your parental discipline of your children, they know whether it's being done out of love or whether it's your outlet for anger. May our discipline only ever be a mirror of God's love towards us, aimed at the heart. Proverbs twenty-three 13, don't withhold discipline from a child. If you punish them with a rod, they will not die. Punish them with a rod and actually save them from death. One author described the discipline of children as a rescue mission, to rescue them from their folly. Because every moment of discipline is an opportunity for a gospel conversation. Because you were a child once, your heart was bent towards folly. Folly. And quite honestly, I don't think there's a single person in this room that would be willing to stand up and say that after 20, 30, 40, 70, 80 years, all of that bend towards folly has been removed. You still have it too, which means that in the moments when you give instruction, when you give discipline, and you're able to have a gospel conversation, what I mean by that is this, I have those same feelings inside of me. I have a hard time obeying as well. Because in those moments, you're not just your child's parent, but you're a fellow sinner in need of the same grace that your child is in need of, which is a reminder of the second problem of parenting, which is not just that you're parenting fools, but that you are parenting fools. You're a parenting fool. Say it that way. Every one of us can acknowledge the folly in our children, but do we have the eyes to see the folly in ourselves? Is anyone willing to stand up and say that they have no more foolishness inside of them? How many of us would be quick to admit—you don't have to raise your hands on this, just think—that you tend towards overparenting, That you've moved out in unloving discipline, in rash outbursts of anger? using your words, maybe even your hands to wound, not to heal, that you haven't given a rip about their hearts. You just want them to knock it off. And then how many of us would be willing to say that we tend towards the other side, that you tend towards under-parenting, that you've just let so many things go because, quite honestly, it's just too awkward, it's just too hard, I'm just too tired. How many of us would admit that our actions, our words, and our values are not aimed at the heart? That you lack wisdom, that you're overmatched in parenting, that as soon as you feel like you've got an understanding on one stage, the kid changes. You change, your life changes, and you're overmatched at every level. You lack wisdom just like a fool lacks wisdom. And you often despise the Lord's teaching and instruction to be patient and kind and gentle Even at your best moments, here's the thing. Folly is bound up where in a child? In the heart of a child. You have not been successful at changing your own heart throughout many years you've lived, much less changed the heart of someone else, have you? You're overmatched. I'm overmatched in this. Which brings us to the hope of Parenting. Which brings us to the good news that Jesus loves fools. That he came on a rescue mission to save fools who had absolutely no interest in him. That not only did Jesus model what a perfect son should look like, but he took the death that was due fools who said no thank you to the creator and ruler of this universe. That there is grace for foolish parents and foolish children and that as a parent, in the moments that you have overparented, in the moments that you have underparented, there is grace for you. There is forgiveness. There is help in your time of need. That God is ultimately still parenting you. That He has not abandoned you to your underparenting or overparenting. He has not abandoned you and just concerned about behavioral modification, but He's committed to your heart. That he parents you with patience and kindness even when you don't parent with patience and kindness. That he is so committed to you and to your heart change and to the change in heart of your children that he would send his son, that Jesus would say, I'm in, Dad, let's go. That Jesus would become like us, lay down his life, trade places with us fools so that we might become wise, that we might experience life which means that in our parenting, our goal is actually to grow in dependence on him. It's very opposite to our parenting goals of our human children. See, when my son came into this world, we did literally everything for him. Literally everything. You have to feed him, you have to wipe him, you have to change him. He couldn't roll over. Totally dependent on us as parents. And can I tell you that if in his 30s, I'm still doing those things, I'm not going to be Very excited about that, right? I I don't want to have to feed my son at 30. Unless, of course, there's a developmental issue or an accident. Okay, yes. But general parenting is to move from dependence to independence, right? But as children of God, it's the exact opposite. You come into this world totally independent of God, thinking, I don't need him. And God's parenting of you is not to bring you from independence to greater independence, but to bring you from independence to total dependence on him which means that the more desperate you are because you're overmatched because you're a fool because you're not a consistent parent the more dependent and desperate you are for the for the heart change in your children's lives and in your lives the more you're actually growing in God's goal for your parents parenting of you it's not needy to God to be dependent it's beautiful he wants that and the beautiful thing is friends you are not alone He has given you His Spirit, and He has put you in this church, which means that you belong to a family here. And I hope every one of you has friends like Brian Gregg for me the other day. I asked Brian if I could say this. A couple of months ago, and I have many Brian Greggs, Brian's just one of the recent examples for me. Brian and I were sitting right over here before a meeting, just started small talking. And somehow he asked a really good question, I don't remember what it was. And he let me just kind of launch into sharing how awful of a dad I felt. Everything I've just said that we're not to do was me. I was just angry, just all over the place in my parenting. Didn't care about the heart, just wanted the actions to change. Just going, and he just listened. He listened, and he asked good questions. And he didn't throw these trite little phrases out at me. But he listened, and he cared. He cared. And basically, if I paraphrase his words, you're not alone. I've been there. And he rightly shared, he didn't try and one-up me, he just rightly shared stories that made me feel, I'm not alone in this. And that meant something to me, but what meant something even more was the next morning when I got a lengthy text from him that just said, hey, I see you. I've been thinking about you. I'm encouraged by your struggle. Because that means you're wrestling with this and you're not just embracing where you are as a dad. You want to grow. Lean into Jesus. Lean into him. Be more dependent on him. I tell you how meaningful that was to me? If you've had friends in moments like Brian, you know how important that is, which brings this to the whole church. You may be sitting here and going, I am so past this parenting thing. Maybe I don't even have grandkids. I don't even, I'm not connected yet with anything you've said. Hear me now. Every one of you, man, woman in this room, has an opportunity to come alongside one another. At every stage, there is someone who has gone before you, and at every stage, there is someone who comes behind you who needs you. Who needs you to be a sounding board for wisdom, to glean, to learn from one another. Because you're parenting fools, and if you're honest, you're a parenting fool. But there's wisdom and counsel. Perhaps the greatest thing you can do for your child is to model a growing dependence and love for Jesus, modeling confession and and repentance, saying sorry to your children more than they say it to you, and fill your child's life with other men and women who will do the same. May God help us as we as a church raise the next generation to know the works and character of our God. Let's pray and ask the Lord and model that dependence right now, together, collectively. Jesus, we are far, far overmatched. Even if we tried to parent together, even if we were totally unified in our ideas, we still would lack the wisdom. And you've told us in the book of James that anyone who lacks wisdom to come to you and ask, and you love to give it generously and freely. And so we're coming. I'm coming. I need your help. I'm inconsistent at best. I don't discipline well. I don't always lead an instruction. And if my kids actually modeled what they caught, it wouldn't be what I want it to be. I need you. We need you. Thank you for giving us your spirit, for not leaving us alone, but for promising to be to complete the work in us that you have begun. Lord, we need you desperately. Thank you for your promise to be with us even to the end of the age. Call our children to yourself. Draw them, give them life, mold them, shape them in the way of wisdom. And we want to be tools in that molding. Father, help us. We love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.